God is with his anointed king. So the anointed is used by God, delivered by God, and covenanted with under God. classic Chinese historical fiction novel, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, set nearly a, a thousand years ago, there's a scene with three men in a peach orchard. If you're Chinese, you probably know this scene better than I do. But perhaps more important than any battle scene in this story is the words exchanged by these three friends that make oaths to one another, counting one another as brothers, even closer than brothers. And they say that they were born at different times, but they want to die as close to the same day as possible. And this oath wasn't simply made on the behalf of themselves. The oath was meant to, to serve the people. Their oath was meant for something bigger than themselves. And as the story continues and different men are vying for the emperor's throne, times of power grabbing, these three brothers try to navigate this messy world and they would continue to fight for each other and for the good of the people. True friendships in these kinds of situations are rare. True friendships, even in quote-unquote normal times, may be rare. And so there's something so appealing about these kinds of friendships, isn't there? Friendships forged when the stakes might be life and death. Friendships formed that may in the end bring some good to others. And while the peach orchard oaths appear to be part of the fictional side of historical fiction, the weight of the O's and the unity displayed make you want to cheer for these kinds of friends. And so I want to ask you this morning, what kind of friends do you want? Who are the people you want by your side when the going gets tough? Do you have that friend that sticks closer than a brother? that bestie, that BFF, that kindred spirit. And what is it that would make a person such a good friend? Do you have shared goals, shared dreams, a shared desire for the good of those around you? In our sermon passage for this morning, we're going to think on one of the most famous friendships in the Bible, the story of David and Jonathan. But I think we'll find that this story... This friendship runs much deeper than simply being war buddies. This friendship begins with the faith that these two men share 
in the living God. So this morning we're continuing our our series in 1 Samuel. We'll see in our passage for this morning that God is with his anointed king. God is present with David. God will protect and deliver David. God can do so directly, miraculously. But he often chooses to use his people, including David's friend Jonathan, in the process. So if you haven't turned there already, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. This morning we'll be looking at quite a long passage together. We'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapters 18 to 20. It's also printed in your bulletins. Just to review where this puts us in the story of 1 Samuel, in chapter 15, the Lord rejects Saul from being king for his disobedience and says that the kingdom will be given to someone better than him. In chapter 16, David is anointed the next king of Israel, emphasizing that, that God looks on the heart. And then in chapter 17, David, the anointed king, defeats the enemy of God's people for God's honor. And that brings us to chapter 18. In order to give us a, a framework uh, for where we're going here, I'd like to sum up a main point for us, and that is this. God is with his anointed king. So the anointed is used by God, delivered by God, and covenanted with under God. God is with his anointed king, so the anointed is used by God, delivered by God, and covenanted with under God. One more time for those taking notes. God is with his anointed king, so the anointed is used by God, delivered by God, and covenanted with under God. We'll split up this main point into three points, which aren't so much points, but more like three acts, like in the acts of a play. So we're thinking of through a, a story, right? Chapter 18 is Act 1, the anointed used by God. Chapter 19 is Act 2, the anointed delivered by God. And chapter 20 is Act 3, the anointed covenanted with under God. Let's begin with Act 1, the anointed used by God. Please follow along as I read 1 Samuel chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the woman sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, 
They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had great and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Now, Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul knew, saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and then Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So chapter 18 begins with Jonathan and David making a covenant. The first few verses of chapter 18 speak of Jonathan's love for David as the reason for the covenant that they made. This section also speaks of Jonathan giving David his robe, his armor, his sword, his bow and his belt. The cultural context for this would have been that a man's clothing symbolizes something of who that person is. So Jonathan, the crown prince, giving David his royal robe quite likely symbolizes that Jonathan understands that David is to be the next king of Israel. It's almost as if Jonathan is giving David his birthright. Now in today's world, 
in recent times, some, some people have, um, have jumped to conclusions in looking at this passage. It's becoming more and more difficult to use language of love for friends without people jumping to conclusions that it's romantic or something. But we must first understand how the Bible was meant to be understood by the original readers and how David and Jonathan are being portrayed here as God-fearing men. In the future, David does sin sexually with Bathsheba. And the story clearly shows that that's sin. And in the Bible, lust and all sexual immorality, including homosexual relations, is defined as sin. So David and Jonathan were just good friends. They cared for each other. They loved each other. And perhaps even men today should be able to give better man hugs and express their love for one another without raised eyebrows. But back to the text. When we're reading a story in the Bible, we're helped much when the narrator helps us, just kind of explains what's going on in the story. So we can notice in chapter 18 how the narrator highlights Saul, uh, it's not Saul's, David's success. At the beginning of verse 5, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. At the end of the chapter, verse 30, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. And in the middle of the chapter, David's success and the reason for his success are mentioned together. Verse 14 states, And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. So the reason that David had success is that God is with him. God is with David, and God uses David for God's good purposes. From the story of, of David and Goliath, we also understood that David clearly understands that there are only two kinds of people in the world, the people of God and those who are not God's people. When David saw Goliath, he saw an uncircumcised Philistine who had dared to defy God. David's success comes as David fights against those who are not willing to submit to God's rule and reign. It's not a testimony to how great David is, but it's a testimony to how great the God of David is. Something else we should notice in chapter 18 is the different responses to who David is and what he's doing. David is described as loved several times in this chapter. He's loved by Jonathan. He's loved by all of Israel and Judah. And he's loved by Saul's daughter, Michael. How pure are these attitudes of love? We'll, we'll see as the story continues. But another response to David is not love for David, but Saul's anger, jealousy, and fear of David. It didn't take much more than a, a couple lines of a, of a country song Israelite women were singing. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And that just pushed Saul over the edge. Not only is Saul jealous, but Saul is also afraid of David. And the reason is clearly stated 
in verse 12. It's because the Lord has left Saul, but the Lord is with David. And so in chapter 18, we have a story beautifully told of a contrast between God's anointed king and the king who God rejected. And the rejected king is becoming more and more afraid, more and more crazy, and more and more willing to sin and even murder an innocent man. While the anointed king simply trusts God, it doesn't seem like David is at this point catching on to what Saul is thinking. And so when King Saul offers his daughter Michael as David's bride, if David brings back 100 Philistine foreskins, David doesn't smell a trap. He instead goes and does it. And he doubles the dowry. And he's successful because God is with him. And not only that, but Saul's daughter Michael really does love David. So Saul's plan completely backfires, and he's more afraid of David than before. In thinking on these different responses to God's anointed king, let's ask ourselves a couple questions. Are we attracted to those who God is with? Are we attracted by, by seeing people who the Holy Spirit is working in and who display the fruit of the Spirit? Whether we're talking about... So when we talk about kindred spirits or, or souls being knit together, we're not just talking about war buddies who have each other's back. David and Jonathan knew God. Jonathan trusted that God could save by many or by few and attacked a garrison of Philistines with only his armor-bearer. David trusted that God would defend God's name against Goliath and faced Goliath with a staff and a sling. So we can see that what mattered most to, to Jonathan and David and what attracted them to each other is what should matter most to us. They cared about obedience to God, they cared about God's honor, and they trusted that God is alive and cares for his people. So I asked at the beginning, what kinds of friends do you want? And those are the kinds of friends that we need. In contrast, we have Saul. Because Saul sees how obviously God has left him, it's easy for him to be envious and jealous of David. And it's a sad thing, but even we as Christians will at different times be tempted towards envy or jealousy. We may see other Christians have success in certain areas that we want to have success in. And instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, we may begin to feel a tinge of, of jealousy or envy. Author Jerry Bridges has a helpful book called Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. There's one chapter on envy jealousy, and related sins. And he writes of three ways we should be fighting envy or jealousy in our lives. The first is to turn our eyes to the sovereignty of God, recognizing that God is the one who gives our talents, abilities, and spiritual gifts. So consider how, how the fact that God determines abilities, giftings, and even the degree of blessing 
should remind us not to be envious or jealous of one another. The second way we can be fighting against envy and jealousy is remembering that we are all one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We considered that several months ago in considering 1 Corinthians together. We are all one body in Christ. So we should be outdoing one another and showing honor to one another instead of being envious or jealous. And the third way that Bridges reminds us of is that if we spend emotional energy on envy or jealousy, we lose sight of what God might be doing in our own lives. God is blessing us, perhaps in other ways that we don't even see. We have much to be thankful for. Armed with these helpful reminders, I would like to add one more thing to consider, and that is the the danger envy or jealousy would put on, on good Christian friendships. We need one another. We need the church, and envy or jealousy can poison the gift God has given of good friends. So, brothers and sisters, God is with us. And because God is with us, we don't have to give in to temptations towards envy or jealousy. Instead, we have the power to truly and selflessly love one another because God loved us first. That brings us to the end of Act 1, the anointed used by God. That brings us to Act 2, the anointed delivered by God. The anointed delivered by God. Please look with me at chapter 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael led David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. 
And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul. He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. So continuing with this picture of, of thinking uh, through this story, kind of like a play in three acts, we'll split up act two into three scenes. In each scene, God uses different means to deliver David's life. Scene one is the crown prince's persuasion in verses one to seven. Before this, in chapter 18, Saul was mostly trying to indirectly kill David by the hand of the Philistines. Here Saul has gotten to the point where he's not pretending anymore. He directly commands his son Jonathan and his men to kill David. But Jonathan still thinks he can talk some sense into his dad. And if you notice Jonathan's logic, Jonathan isn't just appealing to the things that Saul thinks is important. Jonathan is, is still thinking in, in theological terms. Jonathan calls sin, sin. And Jonathan speaks of how when David killed Goliath, it was the Lord who worked salvation for Israel. Jonathan doesn't want his dad to kill an innocent man. And Saul actually agrees to what Jonathan says. And David is brought back into Saul's court. So in this way, God uses David's friend Jonathan to save him from this particular danger. But this peaceful time won't last long. So scene two has David's wife as lead actress in verses 8 to 17. This scene begins with more God-given success given to David against the Philistines and the reappearance of the harmful spirit against Saul. Saul's spear throwing already happened once in the previous chapter, but this time Saul follows it up with sending his men to arrest David to have him killed. But David's wife, Michael, hears of this plot, warns David, lets him down the window, and fakes David being sick. Saul has no problem with killing a sick man in bed, so he simply tells his messengers to bring the whole bed back, and instead they find a fake body with goat's hair. Now Saul's really angry with his daughter at this point, calls David his enemy, and Michael simply makes up a story of David threatening her. 
In both scene one and scene two, it's ironic to note that it's Saul's own family members that are protecting David. It's Saul's son, Jonathan, and it's Saul's daughter, Michael. Of course, by this time, Michael is David's wife, and she cares more about saving her husband's life than whatever consequences her father might have for her. And then we come to scene three, where we end up with Saul unexpectedly playing the role of a prophet by the end. David's out the window, and where does he run? He runs to find Samuel, to tell Samuel what's going on. Now at this point, Saul is stopping at nothing to get to David. So even if Saul is with the prophets and with Samuel, that's not a safe place for him. But when Saul sends messengers to go and get David, they just start prophesying and don't come back. And he does it again and again, and eventually Saul just decides that, well, if you have to do something, you just have to do it yourself. And so he goes, and then he starts prophesying as well. This is a pretty strange chain of events, I think. But it's interesting to note that this is not the first time that Saul has prophesied. In 1 Samuel 10, Samuel prophesied a chain of events, and, and one of those things was that Saul would prophesy when he came upon a group of prophets. Now at this time, I think in reading for Samuel 10, we may have thought, oh, this is a, a promising thing. This is a good thing. The king, the future king, is with God's prophets. But here in chapter 19, the Spirit of God has already left Saul. And instead of this being a promising thing, this is more of a humiliating thing. The Spirit of God is immobilizing Saul in his evil quest to kill David. This gives David time to escape. So in each of these scenes, God works deliverance for David through different means. God works through his people who care for and love David. God also works directly against Saul's plans through causing Saul and his messengers to begin prophesying. So just thinking on the fact that we worship the same God today, let us remember that no matter what the situation is, deliverance comes from God's hand. Whether God's working through people, whether God is uniquely intervening, God rules over human history and he's sovereign over all things. And so when we're overwhelmed with the trials of life, when each day seems like a challenge to live through, let us be people who continue to cry out to God, our Savior, for help. Let's cry out to God as David did. But you might ask, did David cry out to God in this situation? Our passage might not specifically state it, but I think we can assume that he did from another place in the scriptures. In the Psalms, we're sometimes given context for when the Psalm was written with a superscript. 
And Psalm 59 is one of those psalms. The superscript, the little words you'll see in your Bible above a psalm, for Psalm 59, says that this psalm was for when Saul sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. Psalm 59 was first prayed by David, or at the very least inspired by exactly what was happening in verses 11 to 17 of our passage. I won't read the whole psalm now, but I would encourage you, especially if you feel like you're in trouble or you're anxious or overwhelmed, to go home today and and meditate on Psalm 59. Psalm 59 begins with the words, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. And it ends with the words, O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. I think we see that the love that Jonathan showed his friend David and the love that Michael showed her husband David was just a taste of the steadfast love that that God showed and would continue to show to David in saving him. So let's take the truth of David's prayer to heart. But in our story, David's not done running yet. And he won't be done running for a couple more sermons. But that brings us to Act 3, the anointed covenanted with under God. The anointed covenanted with under God. Let's look at chapter 20 together. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why would my father, why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant, but if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, 
if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself, when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go, get away, and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So where does 
David run. At this point, when he's in trouble, he runs to his friend Jonathan, who he has covenanted with. David also wants to know, why does Saul want to kill me so much? So he can ask Jonathan. As the two continue to talk, Jonathan and David revisit and expand on the covenant that they have agreed to with one another. Jonathan promises David safety. But a covenant has expectations from both parties in the covenant. And so Jonathan asks for something. In verses 14 to 16, Jonathan asks that David not wipe out Jonathan's descendants. Both Jonathan and David are rebelling against what would be normal at that time in rising to a kingship. Jonathan is giving up his title of crown prince. From Saul's point of view, Jonathan is turning back on what should be Jonathan's kingdom. And then we have David who promises by his love for Jonathan that when he becomes king, he will not kill all the relatives of Saul who might try to make a claim on the throne. He will not kill all of Jonathan's descendants. Jonathan appeals to the Lord God to be witness of this covenant. At the end of this, past, uh, at the end of this chapter, Jonathan revisits this covenant, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and be between my offspring and your offspring forever. This covenant is made before the living God. And then these two men go their separate ways. In the middle of this section, Saul made very clear his intentions to kill David, even by throwing spears at his son Jonathan. It was almost like Jonathan represented David, and so Saul was throwing spears right at his son. But what's highlighted in, in this section is not so much Saul, but, but this covenant that Jonathan and David make. Jonathan is willing to follow God's choice for king, even when it's not Jonathan. Jonathan puts God's choice ahead of what would normally be the firstborn son of a king's right. But Jonathan and David trust that God will keep his promises to David. And one day, God will put David on the throne of Israel. The covenant that Jonathan made with David has deep implications for the descendants of David and for the descendants of Jonathan. And David would have the opportunity to keep his end of the covenant by showing kindness to a descendant of Jonathan in the future. We'll see that in 2 Samuel. But this also is not the only or even the most important covenant that is made with David, God's anointed king. For the most important covenant made with David, we have to jump to 2 Samuel chapter 7. After David sits on the throne as king, God makes a covenant with David, in which he says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We should pay attention when Jonathan and David appeal to God as witness of their covenant. But when God himself makes the covenant, we should stop and pay even more attention. Jonathan and David's covenant would be temporary in that at some point in the future, we wouldn't know who is left of, of Jonathan's line. But God and David's covenant is eternal. God spoke of an eternal king and an eternal kingdom. Jonathan and David's covenant was motivated by love. God and David's covenant was motivated out of love, not only for David, but out of love for the descendants of David and for all of humanity. God's steadfast love for the greater king in the line of David, whose name is Jesus, would never be taken away. In fact, God the Father had loved his son, Jesus, from before the creation of the world. One of the main truths we were reminded of in this passage is that God is with his anointed king, David. But God would not only be with David, the clearest picture of God being with us. Just think to when, when King Jesus came to this earth, he was and is Emmanuel, God with us. Because God was with David, God would continue to use David for his purposes. For much of David's reign, God would give Israel peace from their surrounding enemies. But God had much greater blessings in store for his people through David's greater son. The fact that we are humans means that our greatest human problem is not outside us. It's not whoever might be reigning in, our, in this country or our home countries. Our greatest problem is the sin and wickedness in our own hearts. God could use King David to deliver his people from enemies outside their borders. But we needed a king who could save us from the enemy inside us. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, those who believe and trust in Christ Jesus in the room want you to understand that you're a sinner, that we're all sinners, that we've all sinned against God. And because of this, we deserve eternal punishment for our sins. God created us. God is perfect. God is holy. But each of us have rebelled, we've turned against God, we've gone our own way, we've wanted to be kings of our own little kingdoms. Like Saul, we've rejected God. Perhaps even some of you in this room might be afraid to acknowledge who God is because you, you realize you can no longer live as if he doesn't exist, if you acknowledge that. But the truth is that he is real. He's alive, and he cares for you. 
because of our rebellion against God, all of us deserve punishment for our sins. We needed a Savior King. Not a King to save us from the physical powers of the world, but a King who could do battle against sin and death and win. And that King is Jesus. He lived the, perfectly, the perfect life. He honored God in all that he did, even unto death on a cross. Death that paid the penalty that we deserve, the penalty for our sins. And then he rose again, showing that he is victorious over sin and death. The payment was accepted. King David is meant to give us an imperfect glimpse of King Jesus. King David is meant to foreshadow David's greater son. So let's never tire of this good news. If you're not a Christian here, please ask me or any of the members of WSBC after the service more of what it means to follow King Jesus. And come again tonight to the Lee's home to witness a baptism, a picture of what God did in bringing someone from death to life. Such a beautiful reminder that God continues to save today for the honor and glory of his name. So the same God who was with his servant David was with his son Jesus and is with us today through his spirit living in us. Let's praise and thank God for that. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you, our God the Father. Jesus, we praise you, God the Son. And Spirit, we praise you for you, our God, with us today as your people. Father, Son, and Spirit, we, we thank you for the love that, that you have displayed in the Godness, in the goodness of the Trinity, and how you've brought us into that love. Father, we, we praise you we thank you for sending your Son. Father, we, and, and Father, we pray that we would live as faithful servants to our King, to King Jesus. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.